Today we're coming to what will be the last of our study on the topic of the armor of God. We've been working on that now for a couple of months, and we've been taking it one piece at a time. We've been taking our time going through five pieces of the soldier's armor, and today we'll come to the sixth piece. And I, You know what? I hope that you guys have been as blessed by our study as I have. I have really enjoyed it. I feel like I've learned a great deal as we've made our way through this portion of Ephesians chapter 6, and today we wrap up just a great portion of Scripture, and I trust that you're able to take what you've learned over the the previous week and apply that to your lives and that your faith will be made strong because of that. But what we're studying today actually began in verse 10, but it was in verse 12 that Paul told us why we needed to put on the armor of God. Do you remember that? This is what he says in verse 12. He tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the message from Paul is that as we walk through this cosmos, as we walk through this present system, this earthly order, this earthly system, living in a way that is reflective of our privileged position in Jesus Christ, as we walk through this system, living in a way that honors God, as we walk through this system in a way that is distinct from the rest of the world, we need to know that we are going to experience some resistance. We're going to encounter some battle. There's going to be some fighting that goes on around us. But it's not simply a battle. It's not simply a fight against other people. But it is a life and death match against spiritual powers and demons who wish to destroy our very spiritual lives. And those are the lives, after all, that really matter, aren't they? Aren't those the ones that count the most? I mean, our physical, earthly lives are temporal, They're only temporary, and as any of you have ever lost a loved one can testify, that is true, isn't it? But the real matter, the real matter, the one that really matters, the eternal matter, friends, is our spiritual lives. And that's where Satan and his forces want to defeat us. That's where Satan and his forces want to attack us, and so we need to be ready for them. And if we're going to do that, we found that we have to be genuine. We have to be real believers, don't we? We have to be the real deal. They want to tempt us and they want to attack us in the areas of our thinking and of our emotions because they know that those are the areas where we're most vulnerable. They know those are the areas that are the most vulnerable or the most vital areas in the believer's life. And so what we do is we put on the breastplate of righteousness. We put on righteous behavior and we conduct ourselves in a way that honors God so that we can protect ourselves from those types of temptations because they want to cause us to slip and fall. They want to cause us to fall, and so they constantly shower us with fiery and damaging arrows of temptation we found. And so we huddle up as a group, if you'll remember, as a group of believers, and we use our faith and our obedience to God as a shield to shelter us from those temptations, don't we? You see, Satan is constantly swinging his broadsword at our head. He's constantly trying to destroy us. He's attempting to cause us to question the genuineness of our faith. He's attempting to cause us to question the security of our eternal souls. He wants us to wonder if it's real. But we know that the future hope of our liberation, the future hope that one day we'll be set free from this sinful body, the knowledge that we will one day be free of struggle and of temptation, we know that that is the thing that gives us hope and it gives us the strength to endure deflects those overwhelming blows of doubt that he would take at our heads with his broadsword. And now, our passage for today is the last half of verse 17. 
And I think that this verse is pretty simple to understand, but it is sometimes wrongly applied in its context. And so I want to help sort some of that out for you this morning. So to further establish our context a little bit, I want to remind you of Paul's instruction as we have come through this portion of Scripture regarding the armor of God. What is it that Paul wants us to do? Why does Paul want us to put on the armor of God? Do you remember? Take a look at verse 11. This is what it says. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Say it with me. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then if we go down to verse 13, he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all that you may stand firm. Then if you go down to verse 14, you'll find that he says, stand therefore with the belt around your waist. So we see very clearly there is something that Paul wants us to do. And what is it he wants us to do? Say it with me. Stand. That's what he wants. He wants us to stand. He doesn't want us to run. He doesn't want us to charge. He wants us to stand firm. Do you see? He doesn't ask us to chase after the enemy. He doesn't ask us to run away. He commands us to stand. And he says that it is the full armor of God. It is the sum total of each and every piece that we've discussed that helps us to do that. That is what empowers us to be able to do that. And now this is where I think people sometimes become a little bit confused. I think this is where people sometimes get it wrong. You see, in the immediate context, even though Paul is very clearly telling us that we should stand, There's something that confuses us in this verse. I want us to take a look at our verse for this morning, and you'll see what I mean. In verse 17, the second part, part B, he says this, And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Are you able to see the problem by looking at this verse here? Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What is it that confuses people so often about this verse? Well, let me help you with that. One of the most deadly weapons in the history of mankind is the sword. Did you know that? One of the deadliest weapons in the history of mankind. The oldest swords that archaeologists have found have dated all the way back to the Bronze Age around 3300 BC. And since that time, we have no way to even begin to estimate the number of people who have been killed by a sword. There have been more people killed by a sword than any other weapon throughout the history of the world inflicts serious and most often mortal wounds to the person that's been run through by it. And because of that, because that is true, because it is so deadly and it inflicts such serious wounds, the sword is most often thought as a vicious offensive weapon, and rightly so, because it is. It is a very powerful offensive weapon. Now, with that in mind, I want to explain to you the trouble that people have with this verse. You see, very commonly, People will come to this verse and they have great intentions and they say that you need to take up the sword of the Spirit. You need to take the sword of the Spirit and you need to attack. We need to push back the enemy. We need to push back the darkness. I'll tell you that in battle, after all, you carry the sword to kill as many of the enemy as possible, right? So they'll say that we should take the sword and we should take the Bible and we should just run people through with it. We should take the Bible and we should whack people over the head with it so that we can beat them into submission and push back the enemy. That may or may not be true, but I want you to know it's absolutely not the case in this particular verse. In this verse, it doesn't work that way at all. You see, how can I be so sure? Well, what is it that Paul tells us that we're supposed to do? Does he say, take your sword and run around whacking people in the head? What does he say? He says, stand. I want you to stand. And if he doesn't want us to go on the offensive with the sword, then why in the world did he ever even tell us to take it up? If he doesn't want us to go around poking people with a sword and prodding them and attacking with it, why did he even tell us to take it up? Why does he want us to stand with a sword in our hands? 
Well, before we discover that, I want to help you remember the context of this verse. Remember that Paul says that as spiritual battle for our souls rages all around us, remember, we have to stand. That's the goal. That's the purpose of this portion of Scripture. Now look, he tells us to defend ourselves. Think back. Defend ourselves by covering the vital areas. Remember that? By putting on the breastplate. He tells us to stand defensively behind our shields. Do you remember that? And what do you think he has in view here when he says to take up the sword? If all of those other things are instruction to stand, do you now think that he's telling us to run around? Do you think now he's changing his tune and he's changing his message and he's telling us to chase people around with the sword? I don't think that's what he's after. And so I think that's where people get confused. You see, it's the completeness, friends. Listen closely. It is the completeness. It is the combination of all of the pieces of the armor put together that allow us to stand. Every piece added together, that's what it is that helps us to stand. And I think that's exactly what he wants us to do. I think he tells us to stand because he wants us to stand, don't you? I think that's what he's after. There are a couple things that I think that we need to understand about the sword. First of all, if we look at verse 17 again, You'll see that it tells us that the sword is the sword of what? It's the sword of the Spirit, isn't it? Now, this particular phrase is a very complex phrase, rather, in the Greek language. And so if you'll just indulge me, I want to share a couple of things with you, and and hopefully this will help. But it comes from the case that's known as the genitive case, and it's very, very complex. And so there are a few different options. I mean, there are many different options, but I want to give you the three that I think are the best to help understand how this works. First of all, the genitive case shows possession. So, for example, in the English language, we would show possession by putting an apostrophe S after a name or something like that. For example, we'd say, this is Scott's tea, right? That shows possession. But in the Greek, they don't do that. They would say, this is the tea of Scott. You see? So the intent is the same. The meaning is the same. You can understand that this tea belongs to me. We just say it a little bit differently than they would say, and they would use the genitive case to do that. Same thing. And so it would be okay for us in this context to say that it is the sword of the Spirit or take up the Spirit's sword. Do you see? He could be saying, take the Spirit's sword. And if you were to interpret it that way, that would be perfectly fine. It's perfectly acceptable. The next possibility would be to think of it as the genitive of quality now. What that would mean is it would sound like this. Listen closely. Take up the spiritual sword. Also a good use of the genitive case. It would be the sword that is characterized by spiritual things. Do you understand? It would be the sword that is characterized by things that are spiritual. So it's your spiritual sword. He could be saying that. And a lot of people like that translation because as in a couple other places in the book of Ephesians, we see him talking about spiritual things and he uses that form of the genitive case. So he's talking about the spiritual battle. And so to use a spiritual sword in a spiritual battle makes sense, doesn't it? I think that would be perfectly acceptable as well. But I want to share with you what I think is best. And I want you to just follow along. What I think is best is what we call the genitive of origin or the genitive of source. Okay, And so what it tells us is where the sword came from. Do you understand? It would sound like this. Let's go back to verse 17. Follow along with me. And take the sword of the Spirit. And take the sword which comes from the Spirit. And take the sword which has its source in the Spirit. And what is the sword that has its source in the Spirit? Look at this. Which is the Word of God. Do you see? 
I think this works best. This is the understanding that I think is most consistent. I think it's the best use of Scripture. Take the sword, which is the sword that comes from the Spirit, which has its source in the Spirit. And where does Paul tell us that the Scripture comes from? He says it is the Word of God. And where does that come from? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is what? Breathed out by God. You see what's happening here? So the Holy Spirit then, or God, is the source of the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is the source that inspires Scripture. And Peter says the exact same thing in 2 Peter 1.21. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So once again, you see that the Holy Spirit carried them along and he thrust them forward. He inspired these men who wrote the Scripture. He is the source of Scripture. Do you understand what I'm saying? He is the source. He is where it came from. The Bible, my friends, came from God. There's a little bit more to it than that. You see, if you look within the pages of Scripture, not only do you find that the Bible has its source in the Holy Spirit, but you'll also find out all kinds of interesting things about the Scripture. Did you know that you'll find out that it is completely without error? The Bible claims of itself that it has no mistakes. David said in Psalm 19, 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect and it revives my soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure and it makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's perfect. It's flawless. It is effective. So scripture is flawless. But the Bible also tells us that it's complete. Did you know that? The Bible says that the Scripture is complete. The Bible is complete. We don't add to it. There's no new revelation that we need to add to it. Friends, hear me. It is a horrible sin against God for man to try to add to the Word of God. And it's a horrible sin against God for man to take things out of the Bible that he doesn't like. That according to Revelation 22.18. Listen, we teach it all. We teach it all. Every word of it. And we submit to its truths in its entirety. The Bible also tells us that it is authoritative. It says that it is effective. Do you know when it is preached, when its truths are applied, lives are changed. When people apply the lives of the Word of God, apply the truths of the Word of God to their lives, their lives are changed. Do you know that it is the power of God to save? It is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. In, in John 8, 47, Jesus tells us that people who hear the words of God and obey them are the ones who belong to God. Those who do not hear and obey do not belong to him, he says. So listen, so the Bible then helps us to determine who those are who belong to God. You see that? Those who believe and obey the word of God, those are the people that belong to him. So the Bible even helps us determine who belongs to God. See how effective it is? It's incredibly powerful. It is incredibly powerful. And you need to understand that within the pages of Scripture are unlimited resources. There is unlimited resource. There is unlimited blessing. The man who listens to and obeys the Scripture is happy and blessed, the Word says. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, according to Hebrews 4. If you'll crave it as pure spiritual milk, you'll be made strong and you'll be made mature, First Peter 2. Listen, when you crave the Word of God, 
When you fill yourself with the Word of God, when you hear the Word of God, when you apply the Word of God, when you obey the Word of God, you are made strong and you have the source to victory over Satan's attacks. See, that's the strength of Scripture. That's the strength of the Word of God. That's the strength of His Word. It helps you to defeat Satan. And in its general and most basic sense, that's the way it is with the Word of God. If you will just absorb it and if you'll process it in your mind, if you'll allow it to take its effect in your lives, it it alone will give you the strength to defeat Satan. Do you understand? But there's something more that I want to show you. And this is probably the most important part of our discussion this morning. Most of you enjoyed the the clip that we played before I got up this morning. And that's one of my favorite scenes from a movie that the kids and I love to watch together. How many of you know what that movie is? Almost everyone, right? It's The Princess Bride. Everybody knows that. So in this scene that we were just watching, Inigo Montoya and Wesley, the, the masked hero of the movie, they're engaged in this remarkable sword fight. You see the steel flying everywhere, and you see such wonderful foot moves. These guys are really going after each other. And as these two master swordsmen are engaging one another and attacking one another, they're also defending themselves. How many of you saw a shield in their hands? None of them had a shield, did they? Neither one of them fought with a shield in their hand. Do you know why? How many of you know what the most effective tool is to deflect the attack of a sword? It's a sword. It's another sword, isn't it? The most effective tool at deflecting the attack of a sword is another sword. You use the sword to parry the attacks of the enemy, you see? You deflect them and you turn them away. As he lunges at your body, you use your sword to deflect his attack and you turn it aside. So while it is true that the sword is very, very potent, even though it is true that it is a very deadly offensive weapon, friends, it is a very, very effective defensive tool as well. Do you see? And if you're going to stand, you need to be able to use a sword. And as those two guys fought, each one of them used their sword. They used their weapon to deflect and to parry and to push away the attacks and the lunges of the opponent. And did you notice that neither one of them ever got hit because they were so good at using their sword? So listen, as we stand on this battlefield for our souls, as you stand and the world is barraging you with fiery arrows of temptation, trying to destroy your relationships with God, trying to destroy your relationships with other people by throwing out all kinds of temptations that seem overpowering to you. As you stand there and he's lunging at you and he's swinging his sword at you, you take up your sword, which had its origin in the Holy Spirit, and that is what? The Word of God. You take up the Scripture And you use the Scripture to deflect and to parry His lunges and to parry His attacks. But there's something that you need to know. That if these men hadn't been so well trained in using the sword, one of them would have died, wouldn't they? If they hadn't been able to use the sword with such precision and such accuracy, they would have been struck and they would have died. If you were with us as we worked our way through the book of John last year, Uh, You'll remember that we spoke to some extent about the Greek concept of the word logos, which is word. That's what the word logos means in the Greek. It just means word. Now, I want to take you back to verse 17, and I want you to see this again. As we look at verse 17, what is it that is the sword of the Spirit? Do you see it there? What is it? It's the word. Do you see that? But what's really interesting is as we look at this, it is not the word logos. This is something else. It's a little bit different. It's the word rhema. 
Now I want you to think about this. It is the rhema of God. And it can be used a little bit differently. And it's important that you understand the distinction between logos and rhema. This is super important for you to get. Listen closely. The word logos is used in a general sense. Okay? So I want you to just stick with me here. Logos is used very generally. So it refers to a broad collection. It refers to a gathering of words and of sayings and of concepts. So your Bible is the logos of God. It is the word of God. It is the collection of precepts, of laws, of saying. It is the gathering of the concepts of God. That's your Bible. It is the logos of God. And so when you think of the word of God, that's what you would do well to think of. This, on the other hand, is rhema, and it is more precise, friends. Listen closely. It is much more precise. So when you think of it, what you need to do is you need to think of it as a military command. That's a rhema. Do you see? It's more concise. It's more precise, and it's better thought of like this. Listen closely. That which was specifically stated, that's the rhema. Do you understand? you see why this is important? That which is specifically stated. Can you see the difference? What Paul is saying is that the sword of the Spirit which deflects the enemy's attacks is to wield the word which is specifically stated about God. Do you get it? It's to use the word that is specifically stated about God. It's to use the word of God. It's to use the Bible with precision and with accuracy. It's to recall concise statements about the word of God that help impact the position that you're in at the very moment. I've had people who have said to me that, and they've pointed to Romans 10 to do this, and this is what it says, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And they've pointed to this passage And they've used it to say that you just speak the Word of God into the air and it builds your faith. You just speak the Word and hearing the Word of God will help build your faith. And I just want you to know that that really is a terrible understanding of this passage. And I want you to know why. First of all, when Paul speaks in Romans 10 of faith, he's speaking of people getting saved. He's not speaking about you building your faith and growing stronger in general terms. He's talking about getting saved. And then when he speaks about faith coming from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ, which Greek word do you think that he uses? Rhema. He says it comes from a rhema of Christ. So do you see what he's saying here in Romans 10? He's saying that people come to a place of saving faith, not from others speaking a bunch of biblical generalities and platitudes and all kinds of church speak into the air at them, but they come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through hearing a specific and concise statement about Jesus Christ. It's not a collection of generalities. They come to faith by hearing the gospel message that speaks of sin and eternal death and the fact that man can be saved from that eternal death through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's what saves people. It's the rhema of God. It's a concise statement. It comes from a concisely spoken message about the saving work of Jesus Christ. It is the rhema of Jesus Christ. Someone is using the message of Christ skillfully and concisely and faith develops as a result. Do you see? I want to give you another illustration of Rhema, okay? This is very important. After his baptism, Jesus was thrust forward by the Holy Spirit, as you know, into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And after Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days, I just love what Matthew says. You know what Matthew says about him? He'd been fasting for 40 days, and Matthew says he was hungry. Yeah, I'd probably be hungry after about 40 minutes of fasting. And so Satan came to him and he said, if you really are the Son of God, 
why don't you just turn these stones into bread and eat? I mean, after all, you're hungry. And you're the Son of God. Just turn these stones into a piece of bread. And at that point, I want you to see what Jesus said to him. Take a look at Matthew 4.4. 4. He said this, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see that? So here's Satan attempting to cause Christ to stumble. Here's Satan attacking Jesus Christ. And as he is thrusting his attack at Jesus Christ, you know what Jesus does? Jesus takes out his sword. And Jesus says to him, it is written over and over again. He's tempted by Satan and Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he uses the word of God to deflect those attacks, to deflect those lunges and those thrusts of the enemy. And in this particular temptation, Matthew 4, 4, I love this. Jesus says that man does not live by bread alone, but he shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Which word do you think he uses here for the word word? Rhema. You understand? Do you see the connection here? He says man lives by every rhema that comes from the mouth of God. Man lives by everything which is specifically stated by the mouth of God. Man lives by every command. Man lives by every precept. And Jesus, of course, was an expert in the Bible, wasn't he? Don't you think he was an expert in the Old Testament writings? Don't you think he was an expert at handling the Word of God? He knew the exact right Scripture for every temptation at the exact right moment. He knew the Word of God. He handled it with precision. And why wouldn't he? Because after all, he wrote it. He knew what it said. Friends, there is a precision that comes from the knowledge and understanding of the specific truths that are contained in the Bible. Just like Jesus, everybody in this room needs to be able to use specific spiritual truths to parry and to deflect the specific lies of Satan. Do you know that? You need to be able to use the Bible to deflect the lies of Satan. And you can't just use the whole entire thing. You need to use the rhema. You need to know it. And you need to be able to use it succinctly and concisely. Because when Satan attacks you in the area of your lust, you need to know what to say. Don't you? When Satan attacks you in the area of lust, are you able, do you know the Scripture well enough to take it out of its scabbard and to hold it up and, and to say exactly as Job did, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Can you do that, Job 31.1? Are you able to pull out your sword and deflect the attack of Satan by saying, it is written, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace? When you're tempted to use your words to tear down and to destroy, are you able to pull out your sword and say, It is written, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may bring peace to those who hear. Are you able to do that? Most people can't do that. But you have to know the Bible well enough to know its specific content. You have to know the Bible well enough to know the specific rhema that it says, the specific words that it says, or you'll never be able to effectively use the sword to deflect the enemy's attack. Do you understand? That's why we take the approach to Scripture that we take here at Root River Church. That's why we explain it section by section, and sometimes we'll even stop and look word by word, and sometimes we'll even break down and give you a genitive case study. Listen, we need to make sure that we understand the Word of God well enough to use it. That's why we teach it the way that we teach it. You see? You don't need generality. You don't need vagary. This week I was looking at a few church websites and I came across one that said, we use humor and stories to help the Bible apply to our lives. This was a church website. We use humor and stories to help the Bible apply to our lives. Friends, listen to me. When Jesus was being attacked by temptation, 
He did not pull out a joke book and tell jokes until Satan fell down laughing and then hit him over the head with an emotional story. That's not what he did. He pulled out the Word of God. And he used it powerfully. And he used it precisely. And he said, it is written, Satan. It is written. It is written. And that's why we don't take a broad topical approach to Scripture. You have to know the rhema. You have to be able to use your sword. You have to be able to use the rhema. Now, I understand that most people don't have knowledge of Scripture to effectively use the sword that way. I understand that. Most people don't have the knowledge to be able to use the sword as a defensive device. And so I want to give you a few steps to help you do that. First of all, if you want to use the Word of God effectively, friends, I say this in love, you have to read it. If you don't make a practice of spending time in the Word of God, you don't know what it says. If you don't make a practice of spending time in the Word of God, you can't use it to defend yourselves. I know that I do. I know people who seem to know Scripture inside and out. And every time you say something, man, they've got a quote for you, they've got a verse, they've got a reference, they know it and they quote it to you back and forth. And and you can be sure, friends, that if they can do that, they're spending time in the Word of God. They know the Word of God. One of my teachers once said to me, kids, you might want to write this one down. If you haven't studied, don't expect the information to be there when you take the test. You see? If you haven't studied, it's not going to be there when you need it. If you haven't read the material, you won't be prepared for your tests. And so I want to help you understand how you should read it, okay? So here are some practical steps. First, I would encourage you to have a planned and scheduled time to read the Bible every day. Have a planned and scheduled time and stick to your schedule. Don't deviate from it. Set that time aside and stay on it. Secondly, before you study and even after you study, I would encourage you to pray and I would encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit before you study to illuminate the words of Scripture for you and to help you understand the concepts and the precepts and to help drive it deep into your heart so that you can recall it when you need it. That's step two. Next, I would say you need to use a good translation of the Bible. There are a lot that aren't great. I would recommend that you use either the English Standard Version or the New International Version. Those are my two favorites. I would encourage you to begin with the book of John. And then I would encourage you to go to the book of Mark. And then Matthew and Luke. And then I would tell you to go to Acts. And after that, I would encourage you to go to all of the writings, uh, the letters that were written by Paul. Next, I would tell you to take your time. Don't be in a hurry just to put a check mark in a box. Spend your time reading. Read slowly. Read, reread. Take your time. I'd also encourage you to participate in Tuesday night's men's study of the Bible. As they dig into the Word together, I would encourage you to participate in that. Ladies, I would encourage you to participate in the Bloom gatherings on Saturday. I'd encourage you to get involved in life group. I'd encourage you to get plugged in. You've got to fill your mind with the Word of God if you're going to be able to use it in in battle. I would encourage you to take notes and to listen intently on Sunday mornings. I would encourage you to eliminate distractions as the Word of God is being preached to you. I would encourage you to listen to the message once again online throughout the week. Allow the Word of God to be driven deep into your hearts, friends, so that you can take it out and use it when you need it. Listen, I believe that God would have Root River Church to be a church that's filled with people who know how to use their sword. Do you believe that? I believe that God wants us to be a church of people who know how to use their sword. And friends, when we reach the point that we are a group of genuine believers, listen, when we are a group of people who are genuine, true believers who guard their thoughts and their emotions with righteous behavior, 
when we finally reach the place where we're confident in our peace with God, when we're finally a church of people who will huddle together and shelter ourselves with our faith and with the faith of those around us, and when we believe God rather than Satan, and when we do all that He has told us to do, and when we embrace and hold on to all that He has promised in Scripture... I believe that when we stand confident in the hope that we will one day be liberated from the sinful body, I believe that when we study to show ourselves approved as workmen who need not be ashamed by the way we handle the Word of God, by the way that we handle the sword, by knowing the rhema, and by being able to use it in specific, valuable words at very specific times, then I want you to know that I think that Root River Church will be a church whose impact for the kingdom of God is nothing short of supernatural. Father, I thank You for the Word of God. And I thank You, Lord, that You've not left us here unprepared to fend for ourselves as we've engaged in this critical spiritual battle. I thank You, God, that You have purposefully and thoughtfully prepared a defense for us. I thank You, Lord, that You have clearly defined for us in the pages of Scripture what it is that we need to do so that we can be properly equipped to stand our ground to the glory of your kingdom and the glory of your honor. So Lord, I just pray that you would help us here at Root River Church to be a church that is skilled at using the sword. I pray, God, that you would help us to be a body of believers who are capable with the word of God and who can speak a rhema at the right time to bring encouragement and strengthening to those who need it. Pray, God, that you would help us to be, as Christ was, capable and able to protect ourselves from temptation during times of attack from the enemy. Lord, I thank you for such a great group of people that you've given us to worship with. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to dig deeply into your word. I pray that you would help us to hunger for it and to thirst for it. Lord, that we would consume it, that we would live on it. It would be our desire every day to get more of your word and to get a greater understanding of you and your precepts. We ask these things in Jesus' name.